Well, as Shelby said just a little bit ago, thanks for being here, especially if this is your first time with us uh, here, either in the room or joining us online. Really appreciate it. My name is Mike. I'm the lead pastor here at MCC. And because of where we are on the calendar, uh, we thought last week, this week, and next week be a great time to talk about the family. And because this Thursday is Thanksgiving, and many of us will be together with family at some point over the next week. And because this Friday is Black Friday, and because next Monday is Cyber Monday, we thought it good to be reminded of what Paul reminded the early church. This is the official beginning of the holiday season, and it runs us all the way through uh, New Year's. So, three major holidays and a ton of stress. I asked people what causes them stress during the holidays. So I wonder if you resonate with any of these or what you would add to it, making sure gifts are purchased, debt, family expectations, schedule, unrealistic societal and social expectations, family who doesn't give a crap about anyone else, uh, and wedding planning. Eric Kraft. Uh, would you believe, <laughs> would you believe, would you believe that Paul helps us with this? We're going to take a look at what he writes to the church in Philippi because it holds value not just for them but for us today as well. So, and then we're going to unpack uh, what he's talking about. So Philippians 4, beginning of verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Paul said, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Right. So for Paul to repeat, I want to make sure you understand why he's repeating that command. It makes it seem, it indicates that there are conditions happening in the city of Philippi within the church there specifically that uh, makes it seem unreasonable to tell them to do that. Certainly, we've all had times as followers of Jesus when it's easy to celebrate and easy to rejoice, yeah? But I'm going to guess that it's also fair to say that as followers of Jesus, we've had times in our lives when rejoicing is not the first thing on our mind. Does Paul really know what he's asking of us? I wonder if sometimes when we think of Paul, what we really think are the highlights of his ministry years, his victories, three missionary journeys, starting multiple churches, speaking before royalty and dignitaries, raising people from the dead. I mean, it seems like all Paul had, if that's all we know of him, all he had were reasons to rejoice. But that's not entirely the picture of Paul's ministry. As a matter of fact, in when he writes to the church in Corinth, he shared some of the non-glamorous moments of his ministry time. He said, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger from the city, in danger in the country in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And as he's writing this letter, he is sitting in a Roman prison expecting that he will be executed. And if your Bibles are open, just so you kind of get an even more full picture of what's going on in his life, the first four verses of this chapter tell us that uh, he has friends in the church who are disagreeing with each other. And he feels bad that he can't be there to help them with this disagreement. But whatever they're disagreeing about, it has the ability to split that church wide open. And in the first chapter 
of this letter, he tells us that while he's in prison, there are people outside the prison stirring up trouble, trying to bring trouble on him while he sits in prison. Listen, I just want to make sure you know, Paul has reason for stress in his life. The question is, how do you respond to that stress? If you were Paul, what would you be doing now? Because what he's about to tell us may be a helpful guide over the next six weeks. So look at verse 5. Uh, instead of being stressed out, he says, let your gentleness be evident to all. Now, according to William Barclay, uh, that's one of the most untranslatable Greek words. Uh, different translations have different words, moderation, patience, softness, modesty, forbearance. The New English Bible, I don't know if you ever read that version or not, uses the word magnanimity, magnanimity. Magnanimity is a big word for a big heart that is open enough, tender enough, understanding enough to accept someone else as they are, to, really, to receive someone into a, a relationship unconditionally, no prejudice whatsoever on your behalf. Robert Frost said this, it's in your notes on the YouVersion uh, Bible app, home is something you somehow haven't to deserve. You don't have to deserve being in the home. If we're magnanimous, our hearts can be open as homes to people where they may come without being worthy or deserving. You know, our translation says gentleness. One author wrote, this is no soft virtue. Rather, it's a bent of character that controls our capacity for rage and activates our capacity to love. In his book, uh, Brothers to a Dragonfly, Will Campbell tells about a lady by the name of Mrs. Tilly. She's this little Methodist woman, Dorothy Tilly, from Atlanta, never weighed more than 100 pounds when she was older. She looked like she was about eight days younger than God. And she joined forces with a group of 40,000 women back in the 30s and 40s in what was called the Association of Southern Women for the Prevention of Lynching. And later, she was active in advocating the desegregation of public schools and got a lot of obscene phone calls calling her everything, every name you can imagine, except for the gentle woman that she was. But she didn't let the calls deter her and no one could intimidate her. She knew that racism was, is evil, and she knew as a white woman that she was through with it, and she wanted her town, her state, her country, she wanted her world to be through with it as well, but she would not stoop to the tactics of her intimidators. What she did do was she had an engineer hook up a recording machine to her telephone so that when people would call, especially late at night, just to spew venom at her, the answer they heard was a baritonist singing the Lord's Prayer, <laughs> and the calls stopped. Uh, now, Miss Tilly was in an incredibly stressful, can you imagine the pressure cooker she was living in? She was magnanimous, and it's what Paul is calling the Philippians to be. It's what he's calling us as followers of, disciples of, imitators of Jesus, he's calling us to be as well. And he doesn't just tell us to do something without telling us how to accomplish it as well. And it's what he called the Philippians uh, to. And so I'm going to give you two of the pieces Paul gives us that will be most useful, I think, during the holidays that will not only help reduce stress in our lives, but help us even this week and over the next several to be more magnanimous as people. So the first part of verse 6 says, do not be anxious about anything. So Paul says, if I want to reduce stress in my life, I need to worry about nothing, which is way easier said than done. Uh, I think we all know that. That word anxious literally means to be pulled in different directions. Warren Wearsby, when he writes about this passage, says, our hope pulls us in one direction, our fears pull us in the opposite direction, and we are pulled apart 
In fact, worry uh, has a definite physical consequences, several, such as headaches, neck pains, ulcers. It affects our thinking. It can affect our digestion. It can even make, uh, affect our coordination. Someone gave this definition of worry. Worry is assuming responsibility for something God never intended you to have. We somehow think that if we can just worry about something, that somehow we have control over it. That if we just worry enough about this thing, we've got this. Uh, someone said, worry is wasting today's time to clutter up tomorrow's opportunities with yesterday's trouble. Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Have you found that to be true? Each day has enough trouble for that day. If you want to be magnanimous, and you do want to be magnanimous, right? Yes. No, I, I'm only hearing a couple people. <laughs> I was really kind of hoping we'd just sort of be a whole congregation of magnanimous people. You do want to be magnanimous, right? Absolutely. And you want to reduce the stress in your life, right? All right, so here we go. Step number two, we need to pray about everything. If I want to reduce the stress in my life, if I want to be magnanimous, I need to pray about everything, which I know sounds like a typical churchy, easy answer. And I just want to say to those who think that's an easy, churchy answer, uh, you're kind of like the two men who were walking together. The first one challenged the other and said, listen, if you're so religious, let's hear you quote the Lord's Prayer. I bet you 10 bucks you can't quote the Lord's Prayer. And the other guy said, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die before I wake, pray the Lord my soul to take. First guy grumbled and pulled out his wallet, gave him a $10 bill and said, I didn't think you could do it. Uh, Paul's <laughs> offer of prayer is no easy solution. It's not a magic formula. There's, listen, this is not like a bedtime or a mealtime uh, repetition of words that we've labeled prayer. And I wish I had put this in your notes. But he's talking about the serious business of bringing our lives before God, examining our dependence upon him, placing our lives in his hands uh, to be used, remembering and celebrating what he's already done for us, confessing our needs, dedicating our gifts, committing ourselves, and all that we are to the common cause of God's kingdom, not our own kingdom. When prayer is seen in that fashion, it's not glib to say that anxiety is an attempt to carry the burden of the present and the future oneself because prayer is yielding it and leaving it in the safe hands of Jesus. That's what prayer is. When we leave those things that we're concerned about in his hands. Abraham Lincoln said this, I've been driven many times on my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. My own wisdom and that of all about me seem insufficient for the day. Look back at what Paul said. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. You know, some people think that God's only interested in spiritual matters. So they only take spiritual things or the big things to God because they don't want to bother him with the little things in life. Howard Hendricks wrote about a time that he had a friend over for dinner. Before they ate, he asked his four-year-old son if he would pray. So his four-year-old son uh, prayed, Dear God, please bless this food and please take care of the fence in the backyard. And his friend was like, What's with the fence in the backyard? And Hendricks said, Well, you probably don't understand. On the other side of that fence is the biggest, meanest dog in our neighborhood. And my son prays every day for our fence in the backyard. Now, I share that with you to ask you, do you think God is concerned about the fences in your yard, in your life? Because he's concerned about everything. Spiritual matters, physical matters, emotional matters, big matters, small matters. 
everything. He's concerned about everything in your life. As a matter of fact, Peter would write this, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. The Phillips translation says it this way. It's in the notes. You can throw the whole weight of your anxieties upon him for you are his personal concern. This means that the God who detailed voice prints and snowflakes and fingerprints to be different, all to be different, is interested in details, all the details of your life. I love Psalm 37. The Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of your life. Think about that, every detail. Though they stumble, they'll never fall, for the Lord holds them by the hand. All right, so don't worry, pray. Step three, you ready? This will help you. Thank God for all things, all things. And I don't know if you've had moments in your life like I've had in mine. I've had moments, though, where I didn't think I had anything to be thankful for. But you know what doing, being thankful does? Takes, the eye, takes our eyes off of our problems and puts them on our benefits. Uh, the late Irma Bombeck wrote, she said, an estimated 1.5 million people are living today after bouts with breast cancer. And every time I forget to be grateful to be among them, I hear the voice of an eight-year-old girl named Christina who had cancer of the nervous system. And when she was asked what she wanted for her birthday, she thought long and hard. And finally, she said, I don't know, I've got two sticker books and a Cabbage Patch doll. I guess I have about everything. Paul would write this, always be joyful, never stop praying, be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. If you want to know what God's will is for you, not just this week, but especially this week, but not just this week, all throughout the year, here's part of it. Be thankful for all things. And let me give you one more from Paul. In in verse 10, it says this, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I just want to point out, Paul's saying that contentedness is learned. None of us are naturally content people. As a matter of fact, life is this school for learning contentment. And the problem is, if we don't figure this out, if we, if we live our whole life unfulfilled and unsatisfied and unhappy, right, if we don't learn this, this is why so many people are trying to figure out how to be content in life. They know that, when that with fulfillment uh, comes uh, satisfaction and happiness. How do we learn to be content? When Paul writes these words, right, about learning to be content regardless of what situation you're in, Do you remember where he is? He is in a Roman prison, literally chained to a Roman guard. The church heard about him, sent a gift, and he's thanking them for that gift. And in the midst of that, he's telling them he's learned to be content. Do you know why learning to be content is so important for us, especially this time of year? Excuse me. Do you know why people shop? And this is, none of this is rocket science. You'll know all these things on your notes, at least three reasons. Because I want to make sure you took this home and thought about this. First, I go shopping to find what I need, right? Again, not rocket science, groceries, clothing, household items. There's something that I need. I go shopping and I get it. I also go shopping because I'm looking for something I want. Again, not groundbreaking, not earth-shaking uh, you know, information. But I think sometimes, as followers of Jesus... We can feel guilty about this because we don't need everything that we have, but there are some things that we have 
that we just kind of want and we think that we would enjoy. To which Paul says, when he writes to Timothy, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Do you see why God provides us with things? He wants us to enjoy them. And while this teaching is not dealing directly with shopping, I do think the principle applies. It's valid. There's nothing wrong with shopping for things that we want, even if we don't need them. And all we want to do is enjoy them as long as we keep balance in our life. Now, the third reason that we go shopping, by the way, so for what I need and for what I want, the third is I go shopping to find contentment. One of my friends once asked me this question I think it's worth having and for to think through. What lie do you live as if you believe it's true? In other words, you know it's a lie, but you still, you know, you live as if you don't believe it's a lie. You know it's a lie, but you live like it's not really a lie. Maybe for most to many of us, we think that when we have uh, what we need and we have what we want, that we'll be content. Have what we need, have what we want, content. Sounds good. Looks right on paper, but we all know that's not true, right? That's why all of us can finish this. Money can't buy happiness. We already know that. But have you ever thought this? Man, if I could just have that, if I could just get this thing, I would be happy. And maybe, listen, maybe for many of us, maybe for most of us, maybe it was just when we were younger that we thought having a new something would make us happy, a new toy or a new bike or a new outfit or a more powerful tool or a newer car or a bigger house or more channels on our television. And because this is a big deal for us, especially at this time of the year, I want to make sure you catch this. If you want to be content, you have to learn to avoid comparisons. And this is big because over the next six weeks, you'll be tempted to compare yourself to the people that you're with. Some of them you don't even like, and you're still going to compare yourself to them right? Most of us can understand why Irma Bombeck said that one of her prayers was, Lord, if I can't be thin, please make my friends look fat. Listen, we get that. We get it. There's always going to be people that make more money than you. There's always going to be people who have greater opportunities than you've had. There's always going to be people who have fewer problems than you do. That has no bearing whatsoever on your personal happiness. You're being content in life until you start comparing your life to theirs. And that always leads to discontent. We've known this for thousands of years. The book of Proverbs says it's unhealthy, or it's healthy to be content, but envy can eat you up. There's this old Cheryl Crow song. I don't know if you ever hear her stuff anymore or not. It was called Soak Up the Sun. I really love this song. One line that would stick out to me in that song is, it's not having what you want, but wanting what you've got. It's not having what you want. It's just wanting what you've already got. So go outside and fire up your car and say, it could be worse. Go home and look at your house and say, it could be worse. Tonight in bed, roll over and look at your spouse. <laughs> I don't know if that really works. I heard Sandy do it the other night. Uh, maybe it would just be best to learn not to compare. And by the way, contentment doesn't mean that you like the situation that you're in. You don't hear Paul saying he enjoys being in prison. What he is being is independent from his circumstances. Contentment is not conning yourself. It's not psyching yourself out, pretending that you like something that you really don't like. That's not contentment. That's just being silly, all right? I, I don't like what I'm going through, but I've learned to be content. 
Listen, if you need to have a perfect situation and a perfect relationship to be content, you'll never be content, ever, because you'll never have those. You have to learn to be happy in spite of your problems. That is contentment. So I want you to hear the words of the Apostle Paul, written from house arrest, chained to a guard, unable to leave his home, awaiting a trial that he believes will end with his execution. He says in verse 19, my God will meet all of your needs. Not some of your needs, not most of your needs, not just your religious needs because he's God and so it's just religious stuff. All your needs. Because the real reason people are unhappy and unsatisfied and unfulfilled is because Jesus doesn't sit at the center of their lives. That doesn't mean they're not in church. I mean, you can still go to church and not have Jesus as the center of your life. It just becomes one more activity on your calendar. But they're looking for fulfillment in all the, fulfillment in all the wrong places. So they run to this looking for something that's going to satisfy them. And they run from relationship to relationship and job to job and from hobby to sports to entertainment to recreation to fads to therapy to books to seminars. Looking for the key to contentment. But God has laid it out very clearly for us. Dale Evans, I don't know if you're old enough to remember who she was. She became a Christian later in life. She said, and this is in the notes, all of my life I searched for the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. But then I found all that I really needed at the foot of the cross. Everything I needed. That's why every week we come back to the cross. Every week we come back. Because it doesn't take the world long, right? It's trying to get your eyes on everything else. And over the next six weeks, trust me, it's going to try to get you looking at everything else from the people you're gathered around a table with to stores and advertisements and the things that you'll see online. It doesn't take the world long to get your eyes on everything else, especially as we celebrate Thanksgiving this week. And the biggest spending season of the year that is supposed to be celebrating what? The birth of our Savior. We're supposed to be celebrating the birth of our Savior. And we turn it into a shopping spree. I'm not saying that shopping's wrong. I'm just saying be careful while you're out there because the world's trying to divert your eyes. And Jesus keeps calling you back. So each week we come back to it. Just to remind ourselves. To be content. To be thankful. Because when we're thankful, we're content. And we're content, we're going to be thankful. And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to remember together, all right? Father, thank you for uh, what Paul said to the early church, because we know it doesn't just apply to the first century, it applies to the 21st century as well. And so we just, we, we want to stop right now. Because we can, in this room, easily recognize as we gather together online in our homes, we stop and remember who you are, who you call us to be. And we come back to the cross, which reminds us of how much you love us. And we very easily get to sing about how much we love you. But the moment we walk out, the doors of this building, the moment we walk out the doors of our homes, the world calls to us. Actually, it comes into our homes. 
through our computers and our televisions and calls to us. Help us to remember the cross, to keep us centered, to keep you at the middle of our life so that our thoughts, our wants can be grounded and rooted and anchored in you. Not that we won't want and not that it's bad to have wants. But Father, as we enter into this season, that we will be careful to make sure that at the end of the day, our actions, our words, proclaim that you sit on the throne of our heart. And so we come to this time now, Jesus, we remember what you did for us on the cross. And we are grateful to you for your body that was broken, your blood that was given for us to take our sins away. This, this is what sits at the center of our heart. And we proclaim it to you now by taking communion together. And Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen. And so we take the bread that reminds us of Jesus' body that was given for us on the cross because he loves us so much. He would rather die for us than go to heaven without us. And we remember. And in just a moment, we're going to take the juice together. But I'm going to give you just a moment, if you would, just to talk to God about where you are with your contentedness, where you are with what you're worried about. Take those to him now, and then we'll take the juice together. So the juice that reminds us of the blood of Jesus that was spilt for us on the cross calls to us. And it says he loves us. And as we, as we take this today, we say that back to him, that we love him as well. Jesus, we do love you. And some days we get running so fast and we have so many things to get done. Our agendas are so full. It's not hard to forget. But we don't want to. We don't want to forget who sits on the throne of our heart. And so thank you for moments like these where we can stop long enough and focus all of our attention on who you are and what you have done and who you call us to be. Especially, especially as we go into this week and into this season. But it's not just about this time of year. This is about our life. But it begins now. So use this time to keep us centered on you. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name.